Welcome, everyone, to episode 78, Stem Cell Burger. Mmm. I am Dr. Kiki, here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'm excited about a lot of things, about this episode, I'm about what's going on in our country right now. I think this is posting as the votes are churning in. I'm a little nervous. I'm exhilarated. I'm anticipating, you know, a good result, but I'm really nervous about the the other. Right? We 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 don't know. We don't, we don't know. know what's going to happen. Know. We don't know. No. It is so exciting. Yeah, and it's all been leading up to this. This final day, this moment in history. Well, I hope it's not the worse. final day. <laughs> it's like, end of days. Don't you know? This is the finale. <laughs> this, this is the is end. The finale of America. Denouement <laughs> and curtain. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's get down to business. Everyone, make sure you engage with us on all of our channels. The easiest way to do that is by going to the stemcellchannels.com where you can easily access all of our stem cell tools, just like signing up for our newsletter. If you sign up for the newsletter, we will email you when a new show is released, and that's going to contain all the links to the papers we discuss, as well as a detailed show summary. Of course, you want to do this because it makes your life easier, and we all like things that make our lives easier. Additionally, you can sign up for our stem cell forum. We have created the first forum for all things stem cells called Stem Cell Chat. Go sign up for free and join the conversation. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right, we have a great show today. Our guest for episode 78 is Mark Post, professor of vascular physiology at the Maastricht University. Mark has created a more affordable way to make meat in vitro or stem cell-derived beef, if you will. And we're going to talk to him about this really, I don't know if it's tasty topic, but first, let's round it up. What do you say? Yeah, I'm ready to round it up, Kiki. We're going to go right into the roundup today. The roundup sponsored by the Stem Cell Podcast. We bring you the news. We bring you <laughs> the latest, and it's always interesting and fascinating. Can you uh, start us off with some stories, Kiki? I love this story. Every couple of years, a finding comes around where textbooks need to be re rewritten, right? Where things are, it's such a big development in our understanding of the basics, the stuff we teach the students who are learning things. And such a discovery has been made. And it's published in the October 28th issue of Science. Researchers from Howard Hughes Medical Institute... Janiella Research Campus in Ashburn, Virginia, have used new methodology, super resolution, to take pictures of the interior of living cells. So normally we have to preserve cells, slice them up, you know, into little slices to be able to get pictures of the structure. And when you preserve cells, it's just a snapshot in time. And also things get broken during the preservation process. So we haven't actually really known about some of this, these fine, fine structures at the edges of our visual resolution. And now we have a new picture of the endoplasmic reticulum. They've looked at the endoplasmic reticulum and found that instead of, you know, this structure that snakes from the edge of the nucleus, you know, it moves from the outer membrane of the nucleus out into the body of the cells. And it's been described as flat sheets of membranes that enclose cisternae or open space. And it's used for transport of proteins and the ribosomes are attached to the outer edges of the endoplasmic reticulum for the translation of proteins, the transcription of proteins, and the actual building of proteins, and then the folding takes place, and the endoplasmic reticulum moves it around. They're not flat sheets. It's more of a matrix. They've discovered that by looking really, really, really close in, this super-resolution microscopy, they've looked at just 10 areas, just tens of nanometers wide, and they've found that instead of membranes, it's dense clusters of 
vibrating and shifting tubules. Whoa. Yeah. And so the tubules come together in three-way junctions, and it links into something of a mesh-like network, kind of a stretchy spider web and that is dynamic. And it moves with the cell when the cell moves. It doesn't, it's not a solid structure that doesn't move. It is a movable, dynamic thing that these junctions can actually be very loose to allow the endoplasmic reticulum to stretch out, or they can be tightly congregated for various functions. And so now, according to the researchers, and this is the big point, For us to really understand disease, we need to understand what normal is. And with this super resolution, we can actually get a better idea of what normal for this transport system is in living cells, how this endoplasmic reticulum remodels itself depending on the needs of the cell, how structure actually informs function. That's amazing. It's so cool. This is serious. This is a big development that maybe people don't understand how big a deal it is. I'll tell you, most people are psyched. The small group of people who aren't psyched, and this is the textbook writers of America. <laughs> They're so sick of rewriting the dang textbooks. Every time one of these big discoveries come out, they get really pissed off. I know. Well, we know the textbooks aren't going to get changed for Probably, you know, five or ten years. So it's got to trickle in, trickle in slow. It'll trickle in. At least we've got Wikipedia. But as of today and this recording, when I was looking on Wikipedia, there's still flat sheets, I bet, huh? Has not been updated yet in Wikipedia. Still flat sheets. So we'll see. Maybe a couple of weeks from now when this show actually comes out, maybe somebody will have updated it. Next story, moving on, uh, talking about updating history. There's been a story in our popular culture since the 80s and the onset of the HIV epidemic. Well, not really uh, the 80s, actually more around the early 70s, the onset of the HIV epidemic in the United States. A single man became known as Patient Zero, which, you know, the idea is that this individual is the case from which all of the entire AIDS epidemic stemmed in the United States. Well, genetic study of HIV viruses from the 1970s is on its way to pretty much clearing this guy's name. They used techniques, the researchers publishing in Nature in October 26th, used techniques to decipher badly degraded DNA from fossils. And they used that to reconstruct the genomes of eight HIV viruses from blood samples that were collected in 1978 and 79 in New York City and San Francisco. They found that the diversity of these genomes was so high that the viruses must have been circulating for years in both cities, picking up lots of variations. You know, there's not really any way that this one guy was the cause. There were probably lots of people Many people who kind of had it around the same time, it probably came in from various places and spread around. A head researcher, evolutionary biologist, Michael Warabee of the University of Arizona in Tucson, and his colleagues calculated that the virus probably first jumped into the United States around 1970 or 71 and spread for about a decade before its recognition in 81 and the finding that it was caused by a retrovirus in 1983. So even though we have this term now, patient zero, another researcher, Robert Ryman, says there's no blame or cause to be laid on any of those people in those early years. And this whole study is kind of a cautionary tale about pinning the spread of any infectious disease on any one person. Because These diseases, I mean, yes, sometimes they do come from one individual moving from place to place, but more often these viruses are circulating in populations for a very long time before we're even aware of them. The old uh, typhoid Mary idea, huh? Yeah. You know, though, it's funny. I guess no, no blame to be laid, but maybe a little blame to be laid because I remember the story about this guy. Famously, he was like, very malevolent and he was a a flight attendant i think 
So the truth of this story, if you, the, uh, NPR did a great, uh, a great yeah. version of this story. The malevolence came, uh, that story came out of the work of an author who wrote a book that I am blanking on the name of right now. He wrote a book that became very popular about the AIDS ep- epidemic and the people, the key people who were involved. And he kind of told the story of this malevolent flight attendant who just flew around having interactions, who was infected and having interactions with whomever and blah, blah, blah. But it turns out that this guy who was the flight attendant, who was termed patient zero, he was one of many people who gave blood, who was actively involved helping researchers try and discover the cause of their illnesses. And he was not malevolent. It was just this was a lifestyle during that, that time. All right, so more evidence. And nobody understood it, yeah. More evidence to clear this guy's name. He's been maligned by the media far and wide. Maybe not such a bad guy, just a product of his time. Yep. Moving on. Something that published in The Lancet, there's an idea from the Duke Center of Autism and Brain Development called PACT for Preschool Autism Communication Trial. And during 2006 to 2008, researchers enrolled parents in, who had children ages two to four with autism, somewhere on the autism spectrum. And the parents, not the kids, but the parents went to therapy sessions where they were taught how to read and respond to their children's signals. Because very often along the autistic spectrum, communication is less. There's this idea that autistic kids don't get the same signals, don't understand social or behavioral signals, and so they're unable to interact with people. And they're also the idea that they're unable to give off the correct signals to let people know how they're feeling or what they need. But they do give off signals. And so in this study, the researchers found that through the training, the parents who were trained actually saw an improvement in the behavioral scores out of a 10-point scale for their autistic symptoms and the severity of those symptoms. Parents who were not trained scored slightly higher on the scale. It's 7.3 on average versus 7.8 on average. So it's not a huge difference, but it is a difference. And the big thing that the researchers say is that the parents themselves felt better equipped to interact with their child, even in the absence of very obvious feedback. And so, you know, just for a parent to feel like they have a bit more understanding, control, ways to deal with situations that maybe they feel powerless in, that is a huge impact just on its own. And so the researchers are saying that maybe this kind of training is something that it could be very helpful to all parents with kids on the autism spectrum. Yeah, I think it's become really clear. People often think, yeah, well, I have an autistic diagnosis. What does it matter? It's, it's autistic. She's autistic. It's done. But the, the earlier you catch these things, the more you can accommodate it and help them towards having a real productive, normal, I don't want to say normal, more typical and substantial yeah. enriching experience. Yeah. And that's good for parents. I mean, you want to have better relations with your with your child. And so if you can help that. Yeah, that's everything. It's everything. Yep. And speaking of relations, mm. moving on, moving on up. We've talked before, or people have talked about humans having interactions with Neanderthals, little trysts, as the paths of ancient humans and Neanderthals passed, overlapped with each other. And you, you make it sound really romantic. Little trysts? Yeah. Did you ever see Quest for trysts. Fire? Or the scene Quest for <laughs> no. Fire? I wouldn't call it a tryst. <laughs> I know. There were, there, it was probably violence involved. <laughs> I'm trying to make it sound nice. <laughs> it was sweet. It was a sweet an interlude. Anyway, so Neanderthals, also Denisovans, another group of hominids, and there might even be others in the human lineage. We know that because we have been able to get the genomes from ourselves and fossil Neanderthals, Denisovans, and others. And so we're finding that we had this, you know, there are a lot of interactions as populations of somewhat separate species or subspecies overlapped. And it's great that we know this about our own history now, but we haven't seen this in the genetics of our closest ancestors, the chimpanzee, until now. 
And it turns out in 10 African countries, Eastern and Central Africa, chimpanzees overlapped with the bonobos. And the bonobos, pan paniscus, separated from chimpanzees, pan troglodytes, about 1.6 to 2 million years ago. We know they're ecologically or through their habitat and behaviorally separated, and we consider them separate species, but they're still closely related enough that when they do overlap, they can interbreed. And there is now genetic evidence reported in Science, October 28th, that bonobo genetic variants are showing up in chimp DNA. And so that looks like there were a couple of overlaps between about 550,000 years ago and 200,000 years ago in Eastern and Central Africa, bonobos and chimps made it. And so there's some bonobo DNA that ended up in the Nigeria Cameroon chimpanzee subspecies. And then again in Central Africa, there was interbreeding about 100,000 to 200,000 years ago. So modern central chimps have slightly more DNA from bonobos than the eastern sister subspecies. And interestingly, the most interesting aspect of this is that even though there's been this interbreeding and the central African chimps have had more interbreeding than the eastern African chimps, they only have about 1% of their genomes from bonobos. And so it suggests that bonobo DNA is disadvantageous evolutionarily Mm. for the chimpanzee populations. And it also appears that the gene flow is from bonobo to chimp, and they haven't really found any evidence of chimp DNA in bonobos. It's a one-way thing, huh? Yeah. So every quarter million years or so, bonobo will be like, eh, you know, pickings are pretty slim. You go check out that bunch of chimps over there, but it's, it's a rare event, but it's not really good. It's not like a positive thing. Not like a positive. And I'm just kind of thinking about behaviorally. I mean, they might overlap, but bonobos are much more peaceful than chimpanzees. Chimpanzees are very aggressive. And so, you know, the disadvantageous aspect of it is that maybe the bonobo DNA, maybe it affects their behavior in a way that makes them less aggressive. And so they don't survive as well within the chimpanzee populations. You know, there are a lot of questions to be raised about why the gene flow is one way and not the other. Yes. If it is unidirectional, does that suggest that it's a a male bonobo infiltrating a female camp of chimps and then it's raised? Because it would have to be retained in Uh the chimp culture infrastructure, right? Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So it's ironic because the bonobo, which is not traditionally aggressive, somehow gets in there mixes it up with the female chimp. It must not, if it's not aggressive, they must be pretty slick. Yeah. And maybe the chimpanzee DNA. So you get the bonobo population. That's pretty peaceful. Females are in charge. And maybe, you know, if a bonobo is maybe a little bit more aggressive, maybe they go, Hey, get out of here. We don't need you around here. And maybe the females kick them out. So maybe they don't survive within the social structure of the bonobo, the chimpanzee DNA doesn't survive. I mean, a lot of questions. these are interesting questions. Yeah. A lot of questions, not a lot of answers, but at least we have evidence. We know they mixed it up. They're mixing it up. That's right. Humans, Neanderthals, Denisovans, chimps and bonobos, mixing it up. Well, I'm going to do my part. Mix it up. Mix it up. Woohoo. A few stem cell specific stories. I'm going to start with the, uh, the theme of the episode. I love this episode. I hope it's, it's lunch where you're listening. The stem cell burger, baby, it's back. And this time it's not going to cost you, well, 300 grand. I was going to say an arm and a leg, but I don't think I could get 300 grand for my arm and a leg. (laughs) So we first met this patty in 2013. It was set to cost $331,400. I mean, it should be said that was cost to set up the lab and all the technology, but okay. $300,000 $300,000 patty. If that same burger were to be mass-produced today, emphasis on mass-produced, it would cost $10. That's according to Mark Post, our guest today and the creator of the in vitro Petri dish burger, which we got to think about the marketing there because that doesn't sound very good, but it is good. Yeah. Well, Post expects that the wallet-acceptable lab-grown burger could hit the market in five years. 
The initial jarring price tag, that $300,000, is largely attributed to the fact that he had to invest in all the technology and the machinery and the lab. The way it works is he grows the meat in a petri dish, and we're going to hear about this later. We've got to ask about the details here because it sounds really simple, but it's not. Using bovine stem cells grows the meat, and the tissue then builds myocyte protein, which is like essentially muscle fiber, just as it would in a live cow. Post has been tweaking this process for a decade in his lab in the Netherlands. And the next step is to try and get fat, you know, the flavor, Kiki. You know, fat's where the flavor's at, right? Yeah. We got to talk to him about that, too. I know you and I had a conversation about where's the taste in these burgers. We'll get to that. The meat industry has really been keeping a close eye on this for obvious reasons. As companies develop ways to mimic meat without the crowded feedlots, the gassy emissions that are such a threat to our environment. There's this plant-based Beyond Burger that, quote-unquote, bleeds. It's a beet juice that's bleeding out. I just don't even understand. <laughs> I don't get it either. Uh, it seems like a gimmick, but I guess there's some function to that beet juice. It doesn't just stain your hands. And then there's a, its competitor, the Impossible Burger, which is probably impossible. And then there's the Petri Dish Meatball from Memphis Meats. Again, we got to work about on the marketing there. Petri Dish? I don't want to eat anything out of a Petri Dish. Anyway, the text there, they're scaling it up. At least Mark Post is going to tell us how we could scale it up and get to a point where we're getting meat from in vitro cultured cells. Kiki, this has broad impact, not just scientific health, but like societal, ethical. It's awesome. Yeah, I can't wait to talk with him. going to be a good guess. I can't wait. Good. It's good. It's going to be great. All right, let's go. Research on a rare genetic disease reveals new IPS discovery. So this is a study in PNAS, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Shinya Yamanaka, famous mm. for inventing the induced pluripotent stem cell, won the Nobel Prize very soon after that major innovations changing the world. His colleagues and he at Gladstone, they found a way to increase the efficiency of stem cell reprogramming. Kind of like accidentally. They were looking at a rare genetic disease. Oh, this is a tough one. I got to say this one slow. Fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva. I actually know about this disease, as though it sounds like I don't know anything because I can't even say it without <laughs> reading it like a five-year-old. But I have followed this disease because I always thought it was, I mean, it's really tragic, but it's a very cool mechanism of disease where every time you have any kind of trauma, your body, instead of healing with tissue, it goes immediately to bone. So it turns everything into bone. Oh, it's so grim. You look at the, the skeletons, these people, Ugh. post-mortem, and they're just a continuous sheet of all their soft tissue turns to bone. They end up like asphyxiating because they're locked in. Isn't that terrible? It's got to be so painful. Yeah. Oh, so painful. I mean, to hear about the, the plight of these patients, luckily, I mean, for, the, for society, it's very rare. But for those few affected, it's really quite tragic. Of course, they have reduced life expectancy. But trying to figure out the mechanism and a way to treat this disease, the scientists at the Gladstone, they kind of stumbled into this innovation. So they started by trying to create a cellular model of this FOP. And they made IPS cells, or they took the patient tissue, which was affected. It has a mutation in this ACVR1 gene which is a receptor for the protein BMP, bone morphogenetic protein. So no coincidence there on the nomenclature. But surprisingly, they found that when they were making these cells into iPS cells by reprogramming, they found that they, they were reprogrammed with very high efficiency and they were self-renewed with high efficiency. And they hypothesized that this was due to this kind of gain of function of this BMP signaling. And they confirmed this by either inhibiting BMP signaling and during reprogramming, which caused uh, fewer iPS cell colonies. And conversely, if you activated the signaling pathway BMP, you would get more iPS cell reprogramming. So this is kind of one of these serendipitous discoveries that came of a study of a terrible disease. To quote the co-author Bruce Conklin, this is the first reported case showing that a naturally occurring genetic mutation improves the efficiency of iPS generation. Creating iPS cells from patients carrying genetic mutations is not only useful for disease modeling, but it can also offer new insights into the reprogramming process. And that's what happened here, Kiki. That's cool. Accidental innovation. Some mm. of the coolest stories happen this way. 
Now on to another innovation. This is a story about blood. I love the blood. You know, <laughs> with blood, I'm not a vampire. Although this is the season. Halloween, I mean, having recently passed. I'm interested in the blood. And one of the things I, I find so tragic about blood disease, you know, hematological malignancy, is the treatment. And the treatment for all cancer, it's barbaric, Kiki. I mean, it's like Stone Age. We're yeah. killing the patients to cure them. Here, take some poison. We gotta kill yourselves. We're gonna kill them all. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. We might kill you. We might kill you. It's a good, it's a good chance, but uh, we're definitely gonna kill that cancer. And this is, I think, one of the great retrospective gasps are gonna come hundred years down the line. It's one of the analogies we always draw. It's like doing surgery without antiseptic. But obviously, there's a lot of reason that we could avoid if we could avoid all this collateral damage with chemotherapy. It'd be better for the patient. There's a lot of ways that we're trying to do that. There's these antibody-based approaches that zero in on the antigen only in cancer cells. There's like targeted chemotherapy, gamma knife, all kinds of ways. But interestingly, now there's a new innovation coming out of Stanford University School of Medicine, diet. These researchers showed that a diet deficient in the essential amino acid valine could effectively deplete the population of blood stem cells in mice and allow them to be successfully transplanted with blood stem cells from other mice. So essentially clearing out wow. their existing blood cells just by depriving them of alien and allowing them to be recolonized by a graft. So this is by a scientist, Dr. Nakauchi, at Stanford Institute of Stem Cell Biology. And, you know, he says, like most, bone marrow transplantation is a toxic therapy. We have to do it to treat diseases that would otherwise be fatal, but the quality of life afterwards is often not good. This approach is an alternative. When they give chemo to mice, all the collateral damage, you know, fertility, their hair falls out, they feel terrible, they look terrible and hunched, they can't have babies for a year. You know, this is kind of the issue with fertility. Cancer patients sometimes can never recover their fertility. You freeze your eggs if you're a woman before you're undergoing things like cancer therapy. Yeah. Yes. It's yeah. a major mode of fertility preservation. Yes, freezing your eggs. But this could be avoided with this approach. They did this in mice. They gave them a mice deficient in baleen, and they had no collateral damage. There's a little bit of effect on, like, hair stem cells, T cells, but they were still fertile. And it was pretty specific to the blood stem cells. Although there may be a little bit of an effect on other cells in the body, it's not as drastic as chemo. And they did this like pretty well-designed study where they deprived a different amino acid, cysteine or valine, and they kept these patients on this diet for a long while. They showed that when they did the cysteine deprivation, it wasn't enough to deplete their blood stem cells, but valine it was. And this makes sense because valine is an essential amino acid that your body can't make, whereas cysteine can be made by some of your proteins in your body. So Nakuchi's really focused on leukemia stem cells because mm -hmm. if they're vulnerable to valine deficiency, because they're the ones that hide out these quiescent little leukemia stem cells, they kind of evade the chemo. And then once the chemo's over, they rush back in and they blow up and you have these recurrences that can be fatal. So if we could get leukemia stem cells to be responsive to this therapy, it would be a major step forward. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, giving an idea into mechanisms where we might target other diseases and cancers. Maybe diet is really more important than we think, and we don't have to do these toxic payloads. Maybe we can go something a little bit more within the natural apparatus. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to think. I mean, amino acids, they're the building blocks, right? And if you can focus on one like this, it's an essential amino acid that our body can't make and just remove that from the diet. And then instead of killing cells through the poison, the toxic substances, the cells just kind of die off because they're not getting something they need. Exactly. And the ones that need it die off. The cells that don't need it stay alive. It's passive. Yeah, it's, it's passive. It, it, it'll be interesting to see what kind of health effects yes. other than the removal. Because you did mention that there are other stem cell populations affected. So what is the mechanism? How does this really work? And what are the health effects? And are they less than the toxic compounds? Yeah, definitely a lot of questions along those lines. Not to mention, like, is it enough? Can you yeah. really clear out all those leukemia stem cells? Or are you going to get a few residual ones that are hardy 
that can handle this low valine diet. I guess we'll see, but yeah. you know, it's opened the doors. It's kicked open the doors in this field of metabolomics and cancer metabolism. I think it's very hot right now. You know, it's something that was an idea of old, the Warburg effect in cancer. Mm -hmm. And now people are kind of turning attention again to how do these cancer cells kind of get an edge? How come they can survive when nothing else can? How come they're yeah. so hardy? Well, because they're not normal. <laughs> they're not normal. That's true. Maybe they need valine. Everybody needs a little valine in their life, including leukemia stem cells. Let's hope. Okay, so just a little addendum on the same, along the same lines. I just thought this is a nice little tidbit. I also like it because it came out of Lund University. Don't everyone sound smart at Lund, you know? <laughs> I, love I love it. I I because they're Swedish. They yeah, have well, the Swedish. That. <laughs> that. They're, they're Lund. Oh, I love them. So, you know, it's one of those things. This is how they're smart in Lund. It's one of those things you're like, yeah, of course. But, you know, it's still something that no one really thought of. So oxygen, we need it. To survive, everybody knows that, but oxygen can be corrosive, as anyone, you know, with a car might know, rust yeah. on cars, that's oxidation. So a group in Lund, similar, along the same lines, has shown that embryonic development is adversely affected by oxidation, as you might expect, expect. and this can lead to a block in cellular function. So, you know, a lot of people have been focused on trying to get a lot of blood cells in vitro to address like hematological malignancies like we were just talking about. If they could get replacement blood in vitro, not to mention like trauma, if you had a blood bank with an inexhaustible supply, it'd be great. But, you know, laboratories worldwide have been trying to do this and get these blood-derived products. They find that the cells don't perform as well as normal blood from donors. Right. They appear normal, but they don't grow and expand as well. And I think our boys from Lund and girls are from Lund, our people from Lund with their big old brains have kind of figured out why blood stem cells derive, our blood cells derived from stem cells don't function as well as donor blood. They find that they have, when you look at these cells that are generated in vitro, they have high levels of reactive oxygen species that are known to cause oxidation. And these levels were high enough to damage the cells and cause them to not grow. Add to that the researchers, our smart Londoners, are they're got a cocktail of factors that can mitigate this reactive oxidative damage in the cells. And when they use this cocktail, they get results that are pretty impressive. Cells that can proliferate to form more than 20 times X, 20X, 20 times more newly generated blood stem cells. So they grow, they proliferate. We'll have to see if they function in an in vivo system. Yeah. But to quote the researchers, by identifying the negative role of oxidation in new blood cells derived from pluripotent stem cells, we have identified it what is perhaps the most significant hurdle in developing laboratory-derived blood stem cells for transplantation-based therapies. That's from Niels Bjarn. 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 My apologies. Dr. Woods, <laughs> I call him. Dr. Woods. From Lund. He led the study. What an interesting study. You know I love the blood, so I couldn't help myself, forgive me. But I, it's just one of those things. It's like another little piece of the pie, you know? Mm -hmm. Get the cocktail, reduce the oxidation. We got blood. Proliferation, done. Taken care of. The antioxidant cocktail. There you go. For new blood. Love it. Well, this was an awesome roundup. We have a great interview ahead. But remember that all of these links to these papers will be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. And of course, they can be emailed directly to you by signing up for the newsletter. All right. So now let's get into the interview segment of the show. This portion of the show is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies wants you to know about their awesome new wall chart, Directed Differentiation of Pluripotent Stem Cells. This poster was created by Kevin Egan and colleagues at Harvard University. It's an easy-to-follow overview of different cell types derived from pluripotent stem cells. It's divided into quadrants so that you've got germ cells, endoderm, mesoderm, ectoderm. Super great, quick reference. You can follow cells along their pathway. Where do they go? What is their, their life cycle? Where are they going to end up? How are they directed as they evolve through development. You can explore this wall chart and stem cell podcast listeners can get a free copy. If you go to stemcell.com slash go direct, you can either print it out directly or you can 
order it and have it mailed to you for free. Then you get to just hang it on your wall or share it with your whole lab. Okay, so our guest today is Mark Post, Professor of Vascular Physiology at the Maastricht University. Dr. Post is an innovator, being the creator of the world's first lab-grown hamburger. Mark's work has been highlighted in mainstream media, and he's given a TEDx talk about his technology and the meat industry. Recently, Mark was back in the news on announcement that the cost of these stem cell burgers has significantly come down. And here to talk more about this is Dr. Mark Post. Welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Wonderful to have you on the show with us. I mean, usually we're talking about things like blood stem cells or heart stem cells or things that are going to be affecting humans therapeutically. And so you're doing something vastly different in food innovation. And so can you give the audience a little introduction to your work and how you got to creating a lab-grown hamburger? Well, I'm actually a medical doctor by training and started with tissue engineering of blood vessels for bypass surgery. And then in the Netherlands, this guy, Willem van Aelen, at the tender age of 86, coerced a couple of scientists, including myself, to start working on the same technology, but now for consumption meat. And when I learned more about it, I thought, well, this is actually a great application. uh, And I became more and more enthusiastic about it. Yeah, uh, I remember hearing about this, I guess it was about four or five years ago, maybe less, when the initial patty came out. And it was amazing because everyone was like, oh, this patty, the million dollar patty, and it was very expensive. (laughs) And so I was really shocked that uh, it's like I was talking with Kiki about this before the show. Is this is there kind of like a, a scale like Moore's Law type with the lab grown meat? Like, is it going to be a quarter and uh, a few years for a patty? We've got it down to ten dollars for the same amount that it took. Again, three hundred thousand plus dollars to get a patty before. What was it about the technology that allowed you to increase the uh, scale and reduce the cost? Well, I actually have to rectify that a little bit because um, uh, that was misrepresented in the, in the news. I, from the very beginning, we have done calculations where upon scaling in a 25,000 liter bioreactor, we calculated it to be around that cost of about 11, 10, 11 dollars for a hamburger. And that's, that's still pretty much the same. That doesn't say that we have scaled already to that 25,000 liter bioreactor. We are just at the at the cusp of doing that, and we are just in in small versions of that uh, bioreactor. But depending on the or judged by the density of cells that you can create and the number of cells, that's about the price that you can come up to. So, what are you doing currently? Is the tissue, this muscle tissue, being grown in petri dishes currently? As you say, you're you're scaling up to small scale bioreactors. Are these, when you say bioreactor, I'm imagining tanks like that algae or yeast or other organisms are grown in for fermentation processes. Is that similar? Right, it's very similar. But obviously, since all these cells are dependent on adhering our contact dependence, you need to grow them on microcarriers, which is for mesenchymal stem cells and for iPS cells already done as well. Most of those studies are actually done with mesenchymal stem cells and iPS cells. When you say microcarrier, is there like a scaffold? There are small microcarriers, usually of a a plastic variety that can be uh, reused and that have sort of interesting, we now have about 40 of them that are available for this uh, large-scale mesenchymal stem cell, iPS cell, or any adherent stem cell population available. If there's any proprietary technology, by all means, keep it to yourself. But I hear when, they, when you read about these stories, like, okay, we're getting bovine stem cells and we're making meat, and you see a patty. But, you know, uh-huh. I think our audience may be a little interested, if you could, without going belaboring the technical details, but to walk us through, because for me, it's also kind of hard to get away from the, the monolayer going to a patty idea. Can you kind of give us the synthesis? How does that right. happen? Right. It's two phases. One phase is just immense cell production. So a lot of cells from a very small population. That's one phase. Then you end up with, yes, a lot of cells. Then these particular cells are capable of merging. 
So if you starve them, they start to merge and they start to form myotubes, merger of uh, 10, 15, 20 cells in, in fibers. And if you provide them with a temporary gel substrate and with anchor points, and this has been described 10, 15 years ago, with a temporary gel and anchor points, they start to self-organize into a fiber. They align and they self-organize in between those anchor points and they start to contract. And that contraction develops tension because they are anchored. And that tension is the biggest trigger for protein synthesis. So we basically made 10,000 of those fibers through self-assembly of the stem cells and then made a patty out of those 10,000 fibers. That's really something. You've got the muscle fibers that are connecting together and adhering and growing and creating these patty. How close are you to, you know, we don't have the fat cells yet that really make the flavor that people enjoy, right? Right. You do. We actually do. Okay. Yes, we are currently uh, from the same tissue or from a, a piece of fat tissue, we are culturing the fat cells. And, you know, differentiating fat cells has been described for a long time, also from mesenchymal. In fact, that's one of the lineage characteristics of mesenchymal stem cells, that you can make fat cells out of them. However, as you probably know, you need steroids and high doses of uh, IBMX, which is a super, super, super xanthine, which is toxic for people, and insulin and indomethacin. And that's a cocktail that you just cannot use in food production, as you can imagine. So... We had to redesign that, and we are now using very simple fatty acids to drive differentiation of our fat cells. So listen to this. I have a hypothesis, and maybe you can weigh in on this. You've <laughs> eaten one of these patties, presumably, yes. right? You were probably the first guy to have a bite of this. I envy you. That must have been a really rewarding experience. It was, yes. So maybe you, you've looked into this, maybe not. But have you, like, considered that, like, a... The goat stem cells may make a patty, and specifically with how it relates to flavor. Is, maybe someone could just tell me whether without having to make the, a patty out of stem cells. But if I made a bovine stem cell patty and I made a goat stem cell patty, would they taste like goat and, you know, beef? And cow. Native? Yeah. yeah. What do you think? I would think so, but obviously we don't have the evidence yet because we don't have that, those species. And we haven't done a tasting yet with the fat. And as, as you know, if you have a very lean piece of goat steak and you would prepare it just like a regular steak, I doubt that you would actually notice the difference. You have to have fat around it to distinguish it from beef or from mutton or from pork. So hmm. I think until we have assembled sort of the patty 2.0, if you like, with, uh, with the fat tissue and have tasted those, we can answer those questions. But I... I assume that there is at least some relation between the genetics of the fat cell and the eventual composition of its fatty acids that determine its flavor. But that's my assumption. Wow. Yeah. Just a quick follow-up there. Sorry, I can't help myself. <laughs> is there any like crazy postdocs in the lab trying to make human stem cells into a human patty? Oh. Uh, no, there's, no there's, <laughs> there's not. <laughs> oh, man. Well, you know, I would look into that. Maybe if it's in the hours of mid mid between midnight and 6 a.m., you got some cannibal postdoc in there. Looking Ew! Jeffrey Dahmer experience. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it, it's not a completely novel thought, but I try to uh, stay away from that as long as I can. Absolutely. Yeah, we, I guess we shouldn't joke about that. Disclaimer, I don't find that funny. I mean, I, I got yes, carried you. away. I apologize to anyone who's sensitive to that idea. Right. So having tasted it, adding the fat adds to the flavor and adds to how people enjoy, enjoy the meat. How far do you think you have to go now before it really will become a commercial alternative? Uh, well, for me, there are a couple of conditions. The initial reasons for doing this were food security and environment. So I think I can only realistically put this on, on, at any scale on the market if I can show that this is resource efficient. And that's in and by itself also dependent, obviously, on scaling up. But that's, that's what we need to show. Then uh, it needs to be regulated because it's a novel food. So we need to prove that, that it is safe and that you can safely produce it. And 
obviously we need to scale up production to sort of an industrial scale. So those are all still uh, reasonable hurdles, and that will take a couple of years before we are there. You mentioned the environment, and I, in reading up on the piece, I saw Bill Maher had a quote. I'm sure it's not his own idea, but he kind of synthesized it. If you want to do something good for the environment, you know, better eat a salad sitting in an SUV than eat a, a burger sitting in a Prius. So maybe you mentioned the environment. Could you weigh in? Like, what are we talking about in terms of if you were to replace all this, not replace, but severely, substantially reduce the amount of meat from animals and replace it with your innovation, what would that do? Yeah, what kind of impact right. would that have? Well, on the basis of greenhouse gas emission alone, it would reduce greenhouse gas, gas emission by at least 15%. What impact? Because that's the amount of the contribution of livestock to our greenhouse gas emission currently. That's not with uh, including deforestation and, and that sort of thing. That's just greenhouse gas emission from the methane and the CO2 that is being emitted during the production process. And then, obviously, in terms of land usage and water usage, the, uh, the savings would be much more substantial than that. It has been estimated by Oxford in about 90% land and water usage. Wow. I'm imagining the kind of system where instead of having to truck meat all over the place or even these patties all over the place, that you could even have local regional manufacturing plants that would use local resources and could be powered through solar power and effectively really reduce the overall impact. Right. And that's exactly what sort of the narrative that we are also, and, and, and the ideas we're also thinking along, having a small farm just in the middle of, because you need your stem cell donors, right? So you still need a couple of animals. And then have a small production system locally so that it caters to the local community, no transport. But even maybe more importantly, reestablishing the connection that people have with the way their food is being produced and giving them control over how food is being produced. Because for most people who don't think about stem cells every day or spend time in a lab every day, this is still a scary concept. And giving people control over how their food is being produced this way, because you know this is the technology and the technology in itself you can control if you want to, that there this very local production system would help tremendously. There's been recent news about the dietary nutritional aspects of insects to our diet and that crickets and grasshoppers actually have higher iron content and other nutrients that are very important to human nutrition and health. Are you looking at also, I mean, you can take the cells from a cow, but are you looking at somehow supplementing and increasing the nutritional content of the meat? Wait a second. Sorry. <laughs> and I'm not I, saying by mixing it with crickets, but... <laughs> I bring up the, the human burger, and it's, I'm a big jerk. But you can talk about... I don't even know what you're talking about, but I'm disturbed. Look, if Dr. Post's <laughs> stem cell burgers don't make it, we're going to be eating cricket and grasshopper burgers. So I'm just asking the questions. Right. Please wait. <laughs> Dr. No, Post, I, what do you I, think? You know, and I, I think it's a fair question. And, and, you know, the same token, we now have uh, vegetable-based substitutes that seem to be getting close to a mimic of meat. I haven't tried them yet, and so, so far I, I haven't been impressed by it. So, you know, I, I think the issue is serious enough to just pursue all these avenues and see where eventually the consumer, because they are the ones who are going to decide where the consumer is going to lead us, I think we just cannot afford to let any of these options go at the moment. And yes, there's going to be an initiative in insects. It's already there. You can buy them. I just visited a large farm in the Netherlands that produced tons of insect meal and insect fat a year. You know, it, that might be another good alternative. The thing that I'm really trying to say at the same time when, when I say, well, this is an alternative we actually don't really need animal proteins. We could be perfectly happy and healthy and procreative on vegetable proteins alone. So we don't need insect proteins. We also don't need cultured meat proteins. So in the end, it's really what the consumer wants to eat. 
Yeah, I don't know if we're going to be asking a similar question here, but talking about the consumer and you mentioned, you know, getting them in touch with how their food is produced and also the kind of uh, fear of technological advancements that a lot of people have. I mean, how do we move forward in a time where we are obviously looking at, uh, you know, reduced water availability, climate change issues around the world that are a direct result of our carbon dioxide releases into the atmosphere. How do we, you know, kind of get past the political leanings of people and the cultural leanings of people to say, we need to make changes. And these are some of the changes that could really give us a positive step toward the future. Right. Well, so I'm, I'm just a very pragmatic person. Yeah. And I think, well, you know, if I give them a food that they cannot distinguish from the livestock thing and that they will, that they can develop a preference for at some point, um, at the same time understanding, because I think you have to give the consumer the credit that if you tell them a very rational story about food security and environment and animal welfare, it's very easy to understand the benefits. Um, And they do understand the benefits. It's just very difficult to make choices. So I think what we need to do is to make the choices very easy for them and to deliver the products from which they can very easily choose without having the feeling that they have to give in for these more abstract benefits of food security and environment. So, yeah, we're talking about the consumer. A lot of people are against eating meat for ethical reasons. Do you get any, what's your feedback from people who are, say, vegetarian because they won't eat meat for whatever ethical reason? Would they now look at your burger and be like, okay, I can eat meat again? Or is there some more pushback about just generally the fact of eating meat is really the issue? Has you gotten any response from people? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Actually, I talk a lot to vegetarian societies, and um, they like me because I steer up the discussion around meat eating, which is not really my intention, but um, that's what I um, happen to do um, alongside. So, So they like me for that. Interestingly, I usually tell vegetarians, please don't ever, ever eat this. <laughs> because, uh, you know, eating vegetables is much better. We can never make this process more efficient than just vegetable growing. It's, it's not going to happen. So what they are doing is always more resource efficient and better for the environment because they are taking CO2 out of the air instead of dumping it. So that, that's why I'm pleading, please never eat this, you know. <laughs> To be honest, the chairman of the Vegetarian Society in Belgium and recently the one in Germany, tell, they tell their constituency, uh, start to eat this when it becomes available because it, it's, we need to make sure that those meat eaters are all going to eat this and we need to give the, right, the good example. Just on a personal note, I know eating meat is kind of a hazard of your job, but would you I, say outside of the lab, are you a vegetarian or mostly vegetarian? So I'm, I'm not a vegetarian. I, um, I still eat meat. We, we eat less and less meat, as most Western Europeans and also most Americans uh, gradually start to do. But I still like it once in a while. But then I like it a lot. <laughs> well, you're, you're my kind of guy, Dr. Post. Yeah. Thank you. I think this is, I, I mean, just looking at the, uh, the ideas and the potential for it, I hope that you're able to really move this forward. I mean, at least... Moving the science forward, that's one thing, because in addition to just making these adhering muscle cells, you're also, you're advancing the technology of creating very complex tissues, which is very interesting in and of itself. And then beyond that, changing the conversation for people about what is our food and what are we okay with? And I thank you for that. Well, and then I I want to add one thing because I, I started to realize that what we are doing or what we are aiming for is cell culture at a scale that was up till now unimaginable. So you have to think about how green we are, how sustainable we are in cell culture for medical purposes, how sustainable we can become, how cost-effective we can become. And this can all be sort of spin-off from doing this for low-cost meat consumption, and it actually can spin off to medical purposes as well. Um, so I think Uh, Everybody should start thinking along the same routes of getting this whole technology more efficient, more resource efficient, more sustainable and greener. 
I guess the idea, the way into the FDA's hearts is through their stomach, I guess, huh? Is, is that what we're trying to say? <laughs> That's probably too, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't want to keep you too much longer. Thank you so much for your time today. This has just been a fascinating conversation. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. What a great interview, Dr. Mark Post. That was a lot of fun. We had some laughs. We talked about some creepy stuff, if I'm honest, but it was still a lot of fun and informative. And I would love to get my mouth around some bovine stem cell derived patty. Kiki, I don't know about you. Are you vegetarian? I am not vegetarian. I was vegetarian for a very long time went vegetarian in college and was vegetarian until the birth of my son. Well, until I got pregnant. And then I started eating meat because I wasn't getting enough protein. You got to take care of your babies. You know yeah. What I'm saying? Yeah. So now I eat chicken and turkey and I eat some fish and, but I don't eat red meat. So it's not an ethical thing for me. I, I call myself a texturetarian. Mm, you're just not into it, huh? <laughs> my wife is the same way. The chewing she, of the yeah, meat. Yeah. Of, ah, but I might try a burger well, grown from stem cells. I mean, I don't know how they're going to deal with tendons and, you know, all that kind of stuff that gives the textures. So. Just have faith in Mark Post. That's he will right. do anything that you want. I'm going to be a Petritarian in about five <laughs> seconds. Because That's right. Petri dish. Right. right, right. Grow it in a dish. I, the one question we did not ask him, though, really, five years, five or ten years? Five to ten <laughs> years. Right huh? from your story earlier, you said that he predicted five years to the patty. Yeah, well, that's pretty standard. If pretty I, standard. I think we, we, we pretty much know the answer anytime we ask for the prediction. It's either five or ten or it's five or ten. He came on the early end, and I like that about Mark Post. He's aggressive, and by the way, he has a patty in hand. That's right. Already so there. If, mm -hmm. if I believe anybody on five, it's Dr. Post on five. <laughs> All right. At this point, let's close the show with a good old SCP rant. And this rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. What are we ranting about today? Well, I know I just went into a whole big deal about the five to ten years. Mark Post is a guy that I can deal with it from, but... Almost every other time, I really hate people. And I'm saying it. I hate them. I hate people who predict things generally. You know, this is an election day where we're posting this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you're hearing a lot of pundits. Everybody got the answer. Most of them are saying the one thing. You open up the Times homepage, and it gives me a percentage that I'm just confused at. And it changes arbitrarily. I'm sick of it. Stop telling me what's going to happen, especially when I don't believe you. I know. And then you've got things like these predictions and people are like, oh, well, this person's going to win. So why do I even need to go vote? Yeah. You know, so it keeps people away from the voting booth because they're like, Meh, it's not even worth it for me to go. You know, when there are all sorts of other issues that maybe they should get their say in on. But they're like, oh, presidential election predicted. Oh, my gosh. And then the predictors get things wrong all the time. You know, it's yeah. we've got prediction markets, you know, where people are like betting on the outcomes of things like the presidential race. And you've got 538 who are doing statistical analysis. You've got the New York Times. You've got everybody. Oh, let's go based on the polls. And but nothing's at stake for the, at least the betters are putting up their ponying <laughs> up. <laughs> That's right. They're putting their money up. <laughs> I want to put a rule. They should have some kind of some cost. You know, <laughs> these predicted a weatherman, for instance, not even they shouldn't get paid. They should like you should like have to pull out a fingernail if they really <laughs> blow it. You know what I mean? Nothing crazy, permanent, but something like that they'd rather avoid. I think that's a good punishment. Yeah. Any predictor of anything. I would like to see Cokie Roberts. Have a have a fingernail pu pulled out when Ow. she made the wrong call one time. You know what, Koki? We'll see if you'll be so smart then with all your predictions. <laughs> oh, if people had to put anything on the line when they predicted things, maybe there would be a lot less prediction going on. <sighs> and we could just see what happens like we're going to mm -hmm. do anyway. 
Yeah. Well, everyone out there, we are going to see what happens. And I'd love to see what you think about this particular rant and also other ideas that you would like us to rant about. You can send us your ideas or your thoughts on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast, or you can email us at stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. All right, Dalen. This concludes episode 78, Stem Cell Burger of the Stem Cell Podcast. It was so much fun. This was a good show. Good stories, good interview. Everyone, I hope you tune in for the next episode. We'll be back with more papers, another interview. Dalen, I'm looking forward to next time. Me too. I predict we will be back. See? I did it. Go (laughs) ahead. But we will be. My fingernail's on the line. If we're not back, (laughs) you can come pull it out yourself.